Now, if you've ever read some of the accounts that you find in this, the Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, you'll know that it's a book that's filled with accounts, filled with stories of people who died because they believed in Jesus Christ. And as you read the accounts in this book, you can't help but notice that they've all got one thing in common. There's an incredible bravery and incredible courage with which these people died. Like the story of the three martyrs who were tied together at the stake. And uh, the story goes that as the timber burst, the timber at their feet burst into flames, well, they burst into song. They started singing the 31st Psalm. And then there's the, the story of another man who, as he was brought to the stake, he walked up to it, he started hugging it and kissing it. It's pretty gutsy stuff, isn't it? Stories of such incredible bravery, stories of such uh, courage. But it's stories like these that start me thinking. I can't help but compare the way that these martyrs approached their deaths with the way that Jesus approached his death. And I'm thinking specifically of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he died. You might recall, we had it read to us earlier, you might recall that there in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're told that Jesus was deeply distressed and troubled. You might recall how he confessed to his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You might recall how when he was by himself in the garden that Jesus fell to the ground and in prostrate and in anguish he begged God three times, begged God that if it was possible to, to, to spare him of this death. You might recall that the very thought of this death filled him with such agony that we're told his sweat became like drops of blood which fell to the ground. Uh, more, more than one commentator has described Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as being horror-struck. And I think that's right. I think he was horror-struck. And for me, I, I think that's what makes Jesus so different from many of the Christian martyrs that I've read, been reading about in this book. I read the account of one martyr who in the time leading up to his death was described as void of all fear, joyful in heart, glad to die. Now for me, that's the exact opposite picture that I get to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, I know that his death would have been terrible. I've seen the passion of the Christ. I know that crucifixion would have been a terrible way to die. But then again, not really all that more terrible than many of the ways that the people died in this book. So I ask, what's going on with Jesus there in the garden? Why was he so horror-struck? Why is there such a difference between him and the martyrs? Could, I, could the difference be one of bravery and courage, perhaps? Could it be that when push came to shove, Jesus actually revealed himself in the Garden of Gethsemane to be a coward? Well, to help us answer this question this morning, we're once again going to turn our attention to the book of Ezekiel. If you don't already have your Bibles open to the book of Ezekiel chapter 4, please turn with me there now. Ezekiel chapter 4, page 588 of the small print, 
1289 of the Large Print Bibles. We're going to be looking at chapters 4 to 7 this morning. And as you're looking that up, let me remind you of the background for our passage. It's about 600 years BC. Uh, the Babylonian king, King Nebuchadnezzar, has come and he has conquered Jerusalem. And what he's done is he's taken some of the best citizens uh, from Jerusalem, he's taken them back to Babylonia, he's taken them into exile. And Ezekiel is one of these Israelites who has now been exiled. But for all of those other people who haven't been taken into exile, for all of those who are still living in Jerusalem and still living in Israel, well, for them, it's, it's pretty much life as usual, although all that's about to change. You remember that last week God approached Ezekiel and he commissioned him to be a prophet to the Israelites, a prophet who must now warn Israel that judgment is coming. And this morning's passage well, it begins with God giving Ezekiel four skits that he's now got to act out in the sight of his fellow Israelites. They're like four mini-plays, uh, each one with a symbolic meaning. Now, we've already had this first part of the passage read to us this morning. We've already heard the, the skits, and we're not going to read them again. But let me remind you of those four skits. Skit number one. In the first skit, God tells Ezekiel to take a clay tablet, okay, a big lump of clay, and what he's got to do is he's got to draw a picture in it. God tells him to draw on it a picture of the city of Jerusalem. And then he tells him to act out like a, a mini siege against this model of the city. And Ezekiel, he's got to build like little model enemy camps around it. And he's got to build little battering rams and little ramps up against the, the model city. You know, this is every 10-year-old boy's dream job that Ezekiel's got here. Although all that's about to change. Then what he's got to do is he's got to take an iron pan, probably more like a, an iron hot plate or something like that. And Ezekiel, he's got to put that between himself and this model city that he's just made. The point of this skit? Well, it's a sign to the house of Israel, a sign of what's coming upon Jerusalem, a sign that an army is about to come and surround the city and besiege it. Notice that in this skit, Ezekiel plays the part of God. So you see, when he puts up that iron hot plate, between himself and the city. That symbolises that there's now this barrier between him and Jerusalem. God's not going to hear their, 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 their prayers for mercy. He's not going to intervene. God is going to let it all happen. There's this barrier between him and the city. That's the first skit. Now, the second skit involves Ezekiel playing a different part. In this skit, he's got to play the part of sinful Israel. To begin with, what he's got to do is he's got to lie down on his left side and symbolically take on the sin of Israel, symbolically become sinful Israel. But get this, he's got to lie there on his left side for 390 days, each day representing a year of Israel's rebellion against God. I think that what this represents is the rebellion, the sin of Israel from the time of King Solomon right up to pretty much the present day of Ezekiel's present day. Then, after the 390 days, Ezekiel gets a bit of a break. He gets to roll onto his right side. He's got to lie there for a total of 40 days. 
I think what's happening here is Ezekiel is symbolising the period of punishment that's about to come on what's remaining of Israel. But notice, did you notice, that that is a total of 430 days that poor old Ezekiel has to lie down on one side and then the other. What's that? That 14 months he's got to lie on his side. Can you imagine the, the bed sores? Um, this must have been terribly uncomfortable, terribly painful. But then again, this symbolises the terrible judgement about to befall Israel. That's skit two. Skit three. In the third skit, well, it involves food. In this skit, Ezekiel plays again the part of sinful Israel. And this second skit takes place at the same time, this third skit takes place at the same time as the second skit, you know, while he's lying on his side. This skit involves the the baking of bread. God tells Ezekiel to bake some bread out of all sorts of grains. He's got to get wheat and barley and beans and millet and spelt. And this is going to be his food for the 14 months. Now, don't think that that list of grains is actually a sign of abundance, because it's not. It's actually the opposite. See, what this is symbolising is that when the siege comes upon Jerusalem, the people who are inside that city, they're not going to be able to go outside the walls of the city and get their food. They're going to be stuck inside. And so they're going to have to scrape together whatever grains they can to bake their bread. It's a symbol of scarcity. There's got to be a food shortage. And did you notice, as we had it read to us earlier, how much food and water Ezekiel is allowed to eat and drink during this skit? Well, it works out, I did the calculations, and it works out that each day he's allowed to drink about 600 mils of water and about 200 grams of bread. That's it. Now, for me... This is what I eat for that meal that comes between morning tea and lunch. That's what I would... (laughs) But for Ezekiel, this is what he had to eat all day, every day, for 14 months. This was his daily provisions. Not much. But then this is a sign of the hunger that the people are going to face. It's a sign that they're going to be left unsatisfied, a terrible, horrible sign of judgment. But did you notice too how Ezekiel is to bake his bread during this skit? Stupid question, I'm sure you noticed. He's to bake his bread on burning poo, human poo. It's pretty gross, isn't it? He's got to bake his bread on human poo. You know, just the thought of eating near a toilet turns my stomach. But Ezekiel, he's now got to bake his bread, his food, on top of burning poo, human poo. Disgusting. What's the point of this skit? Well, it's a picture of the defilement that's about to come upon the Israelites, who are just about to be taken off, some of them at least, taken off as captives into pagan lands. When they're in those lands, they're not going to be able to keep their strict food laws. They're going to be defiled. But Ezekiel pleads with God not to make him do this. So God offers him a consolation of sorts. He tells him that he doesn't have to bake his bread on human poo, that he can use cow poo instead. Some consolation. But I imagine that as the people walked past and saw Ezekiel preparing his food, that they would have been repulsed by the smell and 
you're sickened by the sight. But this would soon be the fate of the people of Jerusalem and without any consolation. That's skit three. Okay, the final skit, skit four. In this fourth skit, Ezekiel is told to take a sword and he's got to cut all the hair off his head and off off his beard. It must have been very painful too. And then what he's got to do is he's got to pile it together, weigh it, and divide it into thirds. The first third of hair, he lays in the middle of his model of the city of Jerusalem and sets it alight, burns up. And that symbolises all those people of Jerusalem who are going to die within the walls of the city, die on account of plague and famine. The second third, he's got to lay it just outside his model of the city, just outside the wall of it, and then get a sword and chop, 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 chop it all up. And that symbolises those who will try and escape during the siege, but who will be cut down by the army just outside the walls. And then the third, the final third, he's got to get it, he's got to throw it up in the air, but his wife's hoping that this is not taking place inside the house, but outside. He's got to throw it up into the air and he's got to let the wind take it away. And that symbolises all those who will escape from the city, but who will later be hunted down and killed anyway. See, this is a terrible, terrible symbol of judgement. There are a few hairs, however, that Ezekiel is told to tuck away into a fold of his garment and then even a few of these he's got to pull out again and burn them too. And I think that's symbolic, a symbolic way of saying just how few people will actually come through, survive this invasion. Ezekiel explains the skit. Let's look at some of the Bible now. Ezekiel is going to explain the skit from chapter 5, verse 8. Please look with me. Chapter 5, verse 8, as we read these verses, listen to the despair and the depravity of these verses. 5, verse 8, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations. Because of all your detestable idols, I will do to you what I have never done before and will never do again. Therefore... In your midst, fathers will eat their children. Children will eat their fathers. I will inflict punishment on you and will scatter all your survivors to the winds. Therefore, as surely as the Lord, as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your vile images and detestable practices, I myself will withdraw my favour. I will not look on you with pity or spare you third of your people will die of the plague or perish by famine inside you. A third will fall by the sword outside your walls. And a third I will scatter to the winds and pursue with drawn sword. It is a picture of total despair and depravity, isn't it? Parents so hungry that they will eat their children. That's assuming that the children don't get in first and eat their parents. God carrying out his judgment with no pity, no favour. For this, his special people. It's a picture of stench, of disease, of blood, of bodies, of fear, of loathing. The symbol behind all of these four skits is the stuff of horror movies. Even the nations around Israel will look at this scene and they will recoil 
in disgust. Chapter 5, verse 14, 514. I will make you a ruin and a reproach among the nations around you in the sight of all who pass by. You will be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and an object of horror to the nations around you when I inflict punishment on you in anger and in wrath and with stinging rebuke. I, the Lord, have spoken. That's the four skits. That's their meaning. Each of them symbolising this horror that is about to befall Jerusalem. But then God tells Ezekiel to pass on two spoken messages to Israel. These ones don't have to be acted out. They're to be spoken. The first of the spoken messages is directed towards those who have been living outside of Jerusalem. You know, it's still in Israel. We've just heard about what's going to happen to the people of Jerusalem. Now we're going to find out what's going to happen to the rest of the people living in Israel. And unfortunately for them, the future's just as bad. Listen to this message of complete and total destruction from chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against the mountains of Israel... Prophesy against them and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Sovereign Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to the mountains and hills, to the ravines and valleys. Here we go, listen to this. I'm about to bring sword against you and I will destroy your high places. Your altars will be demolished and your incense altars will be smashed and I will slay your people in front of your idols. I will lay the dead bodies of the Israelites in front of their idols and I will scatter your bones around the altars. Wherever you live, the towns will be laid waste and the high places demolished so that your altars will be laid waste and devastated, your idols smashed and ruined, your incense altars broken down and what you have made wiped out. Your people will fall slain among you and you will know that I am the Lord. It's dreadful, terrible stuff, isn't it? Picture of destruction and rubble. A picture of decomposition with corpses and bones left to rot. A picture of horror that will come on everyone living there in Israel. Come on everyone without exception. Chapter 6, verse 14. And I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land a desolate, desolate waste from the desert to Dibla, wherever they live, then they will know that I am the Lord. Okay, that's the first of the spoken messages. As for the second, it's no better than the first, I'm afraid. In fact, in some ways, it's worse. Because in this message, Israel is told that the time for all of this punishment is now. From chapter 7, verse 1. 7-1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says to the land of Israel. The end, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. The end is now come upon you and I will unleash my anger against you. I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for all your despicable practices. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. I will surely repay you for your conduct and the detestable practices among you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. You see, time is up. The end has come. Judgment is here and it will be horrific. 
Let's just sweep through the rest of chapter 7, shall we? Let's sweep through. And as we do so, look at some of the vivid language of horror that's used here. You ready? Verse 5. Disaster. Unheard of disaster is coming. Verse 6. The end has come. The end has come. It has roused itself against you. It has come. Verse 7. Doom has come upon you. There is panic, not joy upon the nations. Verse 8. I'm about to pour out my wrath on you and spend my anger against you. The end of verse 9. Then you will know that it is I, the Lord, who strikes the blow. Verse 10. Doom has burst forth. Verse 11. Violence has grown into a rod to punish wickedness. Verse 17. Every hand will go limp. Every knee will become as weak as water. They will put on sackcloth and be clothed with terror. Verse 25, when terror comes, they will seek peace, but there will be none. Verse 26, calamity upon calamity will come. Finally, verse 27, the king will mourn, the prince will be clothed with despair, and the hands of the people of the land will tremble. Do you get a sense of just how horrific all this is? It's relentless, isn't it? Overwhelming. And just a little disturbing. The idea that the one behind all this horror is God somehow doesn't quite match up with the domesticated, friendly, timid God of our imaginations, does it? So why would God choose to bring this horror against those, these his chosen people? Well, the bottom line is this. Because he is Faithful, because he is faithful to his promises. You see, friends, 900 years before Ezekiel prophesied this horror, God promised it. When God first gave the law to the Israelites at the time of Moses, before they entered the promised land, at that time, God promised that if the Israelites kept this law, then they would experience untold blessing. But he also promised, if they did not keep the law, that they would face the horror of the curse. Now, I want us to have a very quick look at some of the promised verses that we find in the book of Leviticus, some 900 years before the time of Ezekiel. We're not going to look at them all. They're going to come up on the screen here. We're going to fly through them and we'll see are just some of the highlighted promises. This is 900 years before Ezekiel's time, where God says, I will bring the sword upon you. I will send a plague among you. You will be given into enemy hands. I will cut off your supply of bread. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. You will eat the flesh of your sons and flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars and pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols. I will turn your cities into ruins and lay waste your sanctuaries. Your enemies who live there will be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations. There's lots more of these sorts of promises. Do they sound familiar? They sound very familiar, don't they? See, what's happening to the Israelites there in Ezekiel is exactly what God promised would happen to Israel if they did not obey the law. Exactly. The horror that we see happening in the time of Ezekiel 
is nothing less than the promised curse of the law in action. And you see, friends, it's when we understand that, it's when we've made that connection that we can start to understand something of the anguish of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. See, what did Jesus do when he died on the cross? What did he do? Well, he took on the law of law. He took on the role of lawbreaker. He he became a lawbreaker, and so he suffered the curse of the law that comes to all lawbreakers. He suffered the curse of the law on behalf of all lawbreakers, even though he was innocent. Galatians 3 puts it this way. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. You see, the very point of Jesus' death on the cross is that he would face the horror of the curse of the law. He died cursed by God. Can you see how that puts Jesus in a completely different category to the Christian martyrs? Yes, they died terrible deaths too, but they never died under the horror of the curse of God. In fact, the opposite. In fact, they died knowing that they would never face the curse of God. That's why they could face their deaths with such joy and courage. You know, as I read these pages of Ezekiel and I see the judgment of Israel in them, it makes me sick. The hunger, the plague, the gore, the poo, the desolation, the cannibalism, the bones, the pain, it makes me sick. And in it I see the full-blown anger of God It makes me sick and it makes me horrified. Yet you see, this is the curse that Jesus bore on the cross. Not that the expression of that curse was the same. Jesus was never forced to eat children, no. But upon the cross, Jesus faced the full-blown anger of God in the same intensity, with the same quality, with the same horror. This he faced. This is why he was so horror-struck in the Garden of Gethsemane. John Stott puts it this way. The agony in the garden opens a window onto the greater agony of the cross. If to bear man's sin and God's wrath was so terrible in anticipation, what must the reality have been like? Well, friends, praise God that you will never fully know the answer to that question. Praise God that you shall never know what the horror of suffering the curse of God is truly like. Why? Because Jesus has suffered it for you. For those of us that now trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, praise God that you shall never truly know what Jesus suffered for you for it shall never be within your experience. 
If you are not trusting in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, then sadly you will know. For one day you too will face the full-blown anger of God. My friend, you ought to be horror-struck. And you ought to do something about your plight this day. Come and join us. Come and join us and live with Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. Come and join us and be horror-struck no more. As for the rest of us, well, let us be of great joy. Let us be like the martyrs. Let us live and die with great joy and great courage, knowing that Jesus has faced the horror of the curse so that we never will. Let's pray. Father God, how can we ever thank you for your great mercy unto us? For we know we are lawbreakers. We know that we were once destined to experience the full horror of your curse. But we also know that because of Jesus, your curse has been taken from us. Thank you, thank you, that at the cross Jesus bore the horror of your wrath so that we never would have to. Thank you that even though in the Garden of Gethsemane Jesus was horror-struck, knowing what awaited him, we thank you that he remained obedient and resolute in his mission to save us. Thank you for his great bravery. Now, Father, fill us with great joy and thankfulness as together we continue to live with Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. In his loving name we pray. Amen.